you're going to remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I confused Heath this week. I switched passages on him. And so it says Acts 3, 1 through 26 in your bulletin. Um, but the, the verses that are listed there are Acts 4, starting with verse 4. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 1. So those of you who have your Bibles with you, um, you're at an advantage this morning. So uh, we're going to start Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1, reading through uh, verse 13. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Before we begin, uh, a big thank you to all those who helped out yesterday with the Hollingsworth, uh, with the Hollingsworth's family uh, as they moved. Uh, Jenny described uh, that there was an army of volunteers from Trinity, and there certainly was. Uh, it was great to see the family of God working together. Uh, both inside and outside the home, packing the truck, cleaning for them. Uh, they are extremely grateful for that. Um, we even got uh, to, to help them out in a very frustrating way, uh, in a very frustrating situation. Uh, Glenn had ordered a 24-foot truck. Budget had called them the day before, saying they only had a 16-foot truck. That 8-foot makes a big difference. 
uh, when it comes to uh, loading up your furniture. Uh, but thanks to the, to the hard work of many of the men in this congregation, they were able to fit most of their stuff in that truck. Uh, it, was, it was impressive. So um, a big thank you from the Hollingsworth family for everyone who came and was, uh, was able to help out with that. Uh, as we move along in Acts this morning, um, we, uh, if you notice, we skipped over Peter's sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 3. We'll talk about that briefly this morning, uh, but I wanted to read those verses that we had in Acts chapter 4. Um, but as we get to Acts chapter 4, let's walk through this passage together so that we understand what is happening uh, as we look deeper into these verses So last week we talked about the miracle that happened. Peter and John go to the beautiful gate for prayers in the middle of the afternoon, and as they pass by this gate, they see a lame man. And instead of giving him a handout, which is what he's asking for, instead they give him a hand up. In the name of Jesus, Peter heals the man, and immediately the man begins jumping for joy and praising God, and the crowd responds in similar fashion astounded by the healing of this man. And they're all filled with wonder and amazement, Luke tells us, and they run to meet up with this man and Peter and John to see the spectacle of what's happening here. And Peter takes the opportunity, like any good preacher, uh, to follow up the miracle with a sermon. And so he preaches his sermon. And what a sermon it is. Uh, In reality, it's not all that different from the sermon that he preaches on the day of Pentecost, if you remember his sermon then. Um, First and foremost, he points away from himself and away from John, and he points to Christ. In a sense, this is what he says to the people. He says, listen, neither John or I have any power here. This was Jesus doing. And he says, remember Jesus? He's the one that you guys had killed? Well, faith in Jesus' name has made this man walk again. And Peter concludes his sermon by calling the people to repent of their sin, to believe in Jesus. And no sooner does his sermon end than the trouble begins. Uh, Last week, uh, we mentioned the fact that in these chapters of Acts, in Acts chapters 3 through 6, it seems like the main character, in a sense, is not the Holy Spirit, as we see throughout the book, but that the main character we see here is Satan and what he's trying to do in the church. And this is where he makes his grand entrance. Uh, The religious leaders appear on the scene, and they are annoyed because they keep hearing this name of Jesus, and they're frustrated. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, they're all frustrated with Peter and John, and they throw them in jail. Uh, They have to spend the night because of how late it is. And in spite of these religious leaders' best efforts, the number of those who are believing in Jesus just continues to grow. So the next day, they take Peter and John, and they place them in front of Annas and Caiaphas and others that Luke mentions. Do you recognize those names, just out of curiosity? Those are the same people that Jesus stood before the night of his trial, that mockery of a trial that he endured uh, before his crucifixion. Peter and John are now standing before the same men on trial because they are uttering the name of Jesus. And so these elders ask a simple question. They say this, By what power or by what name 
Did you do this? And Peter is incredibly bold here in Acts chapter 4. He says this. He says, remember Jesus? You know that man who you had crucified, but who God raised from the dead? We are doing this in his name. In fact, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you can just tell in this situation the air is just sucked out of the room. The religious leaders don't know what to do. They are frustrated and they are annoyed with Peter and with John. They thought that they were done with this Jesus when they had him killed. But now his disciples are doing miracles in Jesus' name. People are still flocking to him by the thousands, and they thought everything would be over with his death. But what they didn't realize was that the death of Christ was like planting a seed, and from it has grown a tree. And as we read later on in Acts chapter 17, this name of Jesus is going to turn the world upside down. And Luke tells us that the leaders cannot believe that these ordinary men, these ordinary, common, uneducated fishermen, are speaking and doing miracles in Jesus' name. They cannot believe that they are doing something so incredible. But this is what they recognized. They recognized the fact that these men were with Jesus. They were with Jesus. So the religious leaders realized that they can't discredit what Peter and John have done. So they did the only thing that they could do. They simply forbade Peter and John to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But with great boldness, you know what happened. Peter and John utterly reject this advice. And this is what they say, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge but we can not but speak what we have seen and what we have heard. And that's Acts 4, verse 20. So the religious leaders have nothing else that they can do. No other punishment they could administer, so they offer up some empty threats, and they let Peter and John go. Everyone who had seen this happen are praising God. It is incredible. So, what we see here is that Satan is trying to oppose the work of the Spirit, but he is failing. And instead, the gospel continues to move forward. So, how and why? How and why are the, is the gospel moving forward? And what we'll see this morning is that it is because the exclusive power of the name of Jesus that the gospel is progressing. This is uh, the second to the last time that I have the opportunity to, to preach as your pastor. Um, that's sad for me. Um, and it's only natural for me in my second to last time to think about this question. What do I want as your pastor to leave you with? What do I want to leave you with? Uh, I know that you will not remember every sermon that I have ever preached during my time here. Because I'll admit, I don't even remember every sermon that I've preached during my time here. 
Um, but this is what I hope. Um, Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he told them this. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So my hope is that as you look back, and uh, my hope is that you will look back and say this, that Mike preached nothing among us except for Christ and him crucified. So, as we take this huge chunk of Scripture today, most of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, uh, here's where we're going to land. We're going to land on the name of Jesus, on the exclusive power of the name of Jesus. This name of Jesus causes fear for those who do not have faith, namely the religious leaders, but it is the power to save for those who do have faith. So first of all, let's look at this. The name of Jesus is exclusive. This statement that Peter makes before the religious leaders is a tough pill to swallow in our day and age. In Acts 4.12, Peter says this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, we live in a day and age today where this world tolerates everything except exclusive claims to the truth. We know that to be true from experience. Each person can have his or her own beliefs or faith as long as they don't interfere with the rights of others to believe what they want to believe. And st uh, statements like Peter made in this passage are frowned upon. Not only are they frowned upon, but people disdain exclusive statements such as this. And as our culture progresses, this is going to become more and more prevalent. It's going to pose more and more of a challenge for us. So how will we stand as faithful followers of Christ when more and more of what the Bible presents as truth is treated with disdain and contempt? People will hear the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they will scoff at us. And they will call us haters. What are we going to do in response to this? Well, what did Luther do in his response? When Luther was challenged to recant all of his writings at the Diet of Worms, Upon the threat of death, he responded with these famous words. He said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me, God. And I pray that that would be our response as well. How will we respond to the challenge in our lives? We will receive increasing pressure to compromise our beliefs Pressure will, uh, will lead to increased persecution, and those who don't persecute us will simply dismiss Christianity as being completely and utterly irrelevant. We must be aware of what is happening in our culture and the challenges that we will face. But what is equally concerning, if not more so, is what Satan is doing inside the church as well. I think we need to be aware of this. He is wreaking havoc in our churches by convincing the rising generations that there is salvation outside the name of Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. 
Uh, there's a new religion that has been coined in our culture that has infiltrated the rising generations, and it is called moralistic theistic deism. You may have heard me speak of this from the pulpit before. Uh, it's a term that was coined by a sociologist named Christian Smith in his book Soul Searching, uh, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Uh, it's published back in 2005. And Smith engaged in a research project with thousands of youth in America, and it was called The National Study of Youth and Religion. And this is what he found to be as the major religion among teenagers in the study, including those who claim to be Christians. So this isn't just secular teenagers, these are Christian teenagers as well. And this is what he found to be as the majority religion, uh, these five things. There is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good, right? This God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. You can see where we're starting to skew here. Number three, this God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's where the deism comes in, where God created the world, but he is absent from it. Number four, central belief. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. The goal of life is to feel good. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. That's the moralistic part. So this was found to be the dominant religion among our teenagers uh, back in 2005. Uh, do you notice a particular name that might be missing from this religion? There's no mention whatsoever of Jesus. None. No mention of Jesus. And that's why this religion is so dangerous. It sounds good and appealing that God wants us to be good and fair and uh, that life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself and good people to go to heaven when they die. But one of my seminary professors, was, uh, his name was Steve Brown, he was famous for saying this uh, when something sounded good but it was heretical. He said, it is from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. Followers of this religion will happy and good and fare themselves into eternal destruction. And why? Because salvation is found in no one else outside of the name of Jesus. Ten years ago, this was found to be the dominant religion among our teenagers. And I dare say that it's the dominant religion today, if not something even more skewed or worse. The question is, how do we get to that point? Even in the church, how do we get to the point where we're raising children who believe that this is the case? And I know that this is not for everyone, okay? You have to take surveys with a grain of salt. Um, I, I hope and pray uh, that this is not all of our teenagers, especially those in the church. But how did we get that way? And I believe that the problem isn't in our teenagers because I don't believe that they got this way on our, their own. I believe that this became the major religion because this is what we ourselves have taught them. 
We may not have done it with our lips, but we've certainly done it with our actions. I'll be honest, my tendency with my children and with the world around me is to display a religion where God does not play a major role in my life. I often show a religion that is based on being good and doing what is right and being fair. I show a religion that desires my personal happiness and my satisfaction above everything else. And my proclivity is to display a Christless Christianity that is based on my good works. And if you are honest with yourself this morning, you have a tendency to do the same thing. How have we done this? I believe uh, the words of Francis Schaeffer are in order here. I can't preach my second-to-last sermon without using an illustration from Francis Schaeffer. Uh, I believe that we have failed to display a personal relationship with a God who is there. I think that's our problem. And just like Peter called the crowds to repent, we are called to repent as well of promoting any other gospel other than the gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone, because the name of Jesus is exclusive. There is no other. So, I encourage you this morning to take a look at your life. If you say with your mouth that salvation is found in no one else, but are living a life that says otherwise, confess your sin and trust in Christ for salvation. This is our gospel calling. You know, evaluating yourselves is one of the toughest things that you can do. So, if you know that you cannot be honest with yourself, I would pray that you would allow someone that you love and who loves you to speak honestly into your life. Because this is critical. Salvation is found in no one else except for the name of Christ. So, the name of Jesus is exclusive because it is powerful. We saw in our passage last week, and we see the effects of it uh, in our passage today, this miracle that Peter and John have done with this lame man. Instead of giving him a handout, they gave him a hand up. And in the name of Jesus, they healed him so that he could walk. And not only could he walk, but he could leap for joy immediately. The question is, does God do miracles today? I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I will tell you this. I did see a miracle yesterday when the men of this church fit a 24-foot truck worth of stuff into a 16-foot truck. It was honestly a miracle. You should have seen it. You could not get one more thing onto that truck. It was amazing. So... Uh, The name of Jesus, as we see in our passage, is powerful. And it was powerful to heal the lame man. And throughout the passage that we read this morning, we keep seeing how powerful the name of Jesus is. Peter says to the lame man, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And that's in 3 verse 6. Later, he tells the crowd, And in his name, by faith in his name, He has made this man strong. And later when he was talking to the religious leaders, he says this, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So it's pretty clear that the name of Jesus is powerful. So does that mean that the name of Jesus is like some magic spell? Can we go around to people and simply heal them in the name of Jesus? Can I say to Ron Plate, I heal you of cancer in the name of Jesus? Or Leah, can I walk up to you and say, your back is healed in the name of Jesus? Or Lee, to your mother, can I say to her, your mind is healed in the name of Jesus? You know, we know that it doesn't work like that. Sometimes I wish that it did. But how does it work? How is it that faith in the name of Jesus made this lame man walk? And why does it seem like that doesn't happen today like it did then? You know, that's a really hard question to answer, isn't it? I think an easy answer would be to simply say that God allowed miracles to happen then during the time of the apostles for a particular purpose in the life of the early church. And I think that's a good reason. But I think we also have to struggle with the, the question. The hard answer would be to simply say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Is there power to heal through faith in the name of Jesus? Of course there is. Because the name of Jesus is powerful. We cannot and we shall not limit the ability of God to do the miraculous. Does he typically do it like he did with the lame man? No. No. He doesn't. God is a God who is not manipulated by saying a magic formula, by saying some magic spell. God doesn't do our bidding if we give him a command ending with, in the name of Jesus. We can't go to God and say, God, give me the Powerball numbers in the name of Jesus. Besides, someone I heard someone in New Hampshire won this past week anyways, so she won the jackpot. Um, God isn't manipulated like that, and I think that we all understand that to a certain degree. But the tough question remains, why doesn't God heal when we cry out to him, humbly and honestly in Jesus' name. Why didn't God heal the son of Heath's cousin when we cried out to him in prayer? Why doesn't he heal my daughter's heart condition? When I cry out to him in the name of Jesus, Why doesn't he mend relationships or end suffering or stop the pain when we cry out in Jesus' name? You know, I wish I had the answers. I wish that I had the answers. I wish that I could explain the ways of God simply and clearly, but the truth of the matter is this. We don't always understand the ways of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9 is a struggle, but it's also an encouragement. 
where Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When it comes to our great and our awesome God, there are some things that we simply need to accept through faith. With the Philippian jailer, we need to say this, I believe, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Because God is God, and we are not. He understands things that I will never be able to comprehend. But even though we may not be able to understand what is happening in our lives, we can trust that He is good. You know, when I was... I think seven or eight, I uh, was running in church. You should never run in church. <laughs> because what happened was I tried to g- push open a door that had a, a glass uh, plate, and instead of hitting the door, I put my arm through the glass. And in my frightened state, not knowing what to do, I pulled my arm out quickly, and I opened up a gash uh, right at my elbow here, uh, very deep. Uh, My dad needed to take me to an urgent care. And as we were there in the room, the doctors and nurses proceeded to give me multiple shots in the gaping wound on my arm. I screamed and I cried because of that pain. And I didn't understand why my dad would just sit there next to me and allow the doctors to do that to me. But it wasn't until they started to sew me up that I realized that the pain of those shots was to numb my arm so that they could sew me up. What I didn't realize was that the pain was for my healing. You know, God works in our lives in ways that we may not understand, but he loves us. And he works for the good of those who love him, as he says in Romans 8.28. And he works for his own glory. In reality, although our physical healing may not happen in this life, it will happen in the life to come. In a very real sense, we are, all of us are being healed like the lame man. It may just not be happening here. As we prayed this morning, it has happened for Ron's father. Ron's father is healed, and like this lame man, he is leaping for joy uh, on the streets of heaven. So, the power, the name of Jesus has the power to heal our physical bodies, but he also has the power over sin. And this is where we will conclude this morning. In his sermon, Peter tells the crowd to repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And that's in Acts 3, verse 19. And as we have already discussed, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, or by which we must be saved. What I find uh, that is absolutely amazing when you stop and ponder it is this. In Peter's sermon to the crowd, he accused them of killing the author of life. So you kind of get the sense of what he's saying here. He's saying, you put to death the person who created life. The very person who gave you life, you put that person to death. It's a tremendous amount of irony there. 
But isn't the dramatic irony of the death of Christ simply incredible? It's the very death of the author of life that brings life to those who have faith in his name. Because of the power of the name of Jesus, even those who took part in the murder of the author of life can be saved through his name. This is the power that the name of Jesus had. And if people who murdered Jesus can be saved, then won't our repenting and having faith in the name of Jesus also save us from our sins as well? You know, compared to uh, murdering the author of life, it seems like our sins aren't really that great in comparison. But you know as well as I do, even though that we did not utter the words, crucify him in first century Jerusalem, our sin resulted in the death of the author of life. Just as much as the people in the crowd that day. We need to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. In fact, because salvation is found in no one else under heaven, every Christian from the beginning is forgiven of their sin through the powerful name of Jesus and through him alone. And it isn't something that we can achieve on our own. It's something that God has done for us. Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So in other words, God did through Christ what we couldn't do on our own, and that is accomplish salvation. So uh, I know as Presbyterians that we aren't used to offering invitations and walking aisles, but there is power in the name of Jesus when the gospel is being preached. Hearts and lives are converted. Uh, there's a story of the Reverend William Haslam. He was a, a country parson in England. And by parson, that's another word for, for minister or pastor. And he wrote an autobiography entitled From Death into Life. And he recounts the moment of his conversion. It's pretty incredible. It happened during a sermon on a Sunday morning. In fact, it was a sermon that he himself was preaching. During the middle of the sermon, he yelled out to his congregation, and he yelled this, he yelled, the parson is converted. Can you imagine the reaction of the congregation uh, when he uh, would yell that? Uh, the, his conversion during his own sermon sparked many other conversions as well as God poured out the Spirit and a revival broke out there in England. So, this morning, if you realize that you have been living your part life apart from God, that you are a sinner in need of salvation through faith in the name of Jesus, I'm going to be standing at the back after the service. If you want to come and talk to me, please do. Uh, if at any time you feel the need to stand up during our service and to yell, I am converted, we will not stop you and we will not judge you. Um, but if you want to come and be very Presbyterian about it and come talk to me after the service, we can also do that and we can pray together. I would love to do that. So, as we conclude this morning, as I mentioned earlier, this is the second to last sermon that I'll be preaching here as your pastor. Um, and as I move on and another man takes my place behind the pulpit here, this is what I hope happens here at Trinity. 
There is a, a plaque that rests on the pulpit at the church where I grew up, at Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church. Uh, I'm sure it's still there. Uh, I'm going to check the next time I go home. Um, but the plaque is a quote from John chapter 12, verse 21, and it's in the Old King James Version. Uh, there's a situation where men had come from Galilee uh, to see Jesus, and they came up to Philip, one of his disciples. And this is what they said to him, and this is what's written on the plaque uh, for the preacher to see as he presents the word of God to the people. And the plaque reads this. It says, Sir, we would, sir, we would see Jesus. My hope is that as this transition happens and as, as I move on and a new man takes my place, I hope that you are left with Jesus and not with me. I know that my memory will fade, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. But I know that the powerful name of Jesus will not fade. And my hope and prayer is that we would see Jesus, that we would have faith, faith in his powerful and exclusive name. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, we come before you in prayer in the exclusive and powerful name of Jesus. Because we know and we have been convinced through your word that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Father, we confess that often in our lives we try to find salvation in other ways. We may confess with our mouths that Jesus is the only way, but in the way that we live and act, we, all, we, often, we often promote a different gospel. Lord, I pray that you would first and foremost convict us of our sin so that we might repent. And I pray that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel. That salvation is not something that we achieve. Instead, it is something that has been achieved for us through the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would surrender completely to the exclusive and powerful name of Christ. And we pray this in His name alone. Amen.